This is a Federal News Network podcast. With the return to the office up in the air thanks to the resurgence of the COVID virus, it's a good time to think about how to support the mass remote working more or less permanently. For some ideas, we turn to two experts from the General Services Administration's Office of Enterprise Technology Solutions. Amy Hazeltine is the executive director. Ms. Hazeltine, good to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks so much. And Jim Russo is the Branch Chief of Solutions Development. Jim, good to have you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And so let's begin with what you see ahead. I mean, you're probably getting signals from the agencies. We all thought maybe naively when the vaccines started getting into mass production and distribution in April, May, golly, we're going to be back, you know, by Labor Day. Maybe not so much now. So what are you planning for, for service to the agencies as you see it? Well, Tom, I think um, if you don't mind, I'll kind of jump in here and just kind of share a little bit about our experience. Uh, And then, Jim, if you don't mind, I'll ask you to chime in as well. You know, the truth is this past year, year and a half has really totally shifted the paradigm for agencies, particularly as they're relying increasingly, and in some cases, almost completely on telework. Um, Agencies, they had to pivot, they had to react, they had to adapt. And it created this increased level of vulnerability and a heightened need for safe, secure infrastructure. Technology, that became the lifeblood of what we were doing and how we were talking to each other. But it also brought in some new opportunities for the bad actors to actually exploit. We were thinking about, and all of us responding to, how we were supporting our users who needed to gain access to the network, whether it was their home network, their personal devices. It was a totally new way of working And we needed to figure out how to do that. And agencies needed to figure out how to get the hardware they needed and how to ensure capacity and access were supported and maintained. But we were still creating that safe and secure environment because maintaining mission, maintaining the continuity was critical to developing new and interesting solutions and policy relationships, but at the same time ensuring that we were delivering results. Uh, And one of the pieces of this was recognizing that particularly as you're pivoting during the middle of a challenge, something as large and substantial, particularly as the pandemic, that you can't rely on outdated technology to make that happen. You have to look toward ways to modernize your infrastructure to get out of that challenging spot of being in a legacy technology-driven environment and really look toward the future. And I think that's where GSA can really play a role in supporting agencies as they understand the mission now, look toward the future and think about how they're gonna modernize. Jim, do you wanna jump in and share a little bit of your perspective too? Sure, Amy. So, you know, as you said, uh, you know, the first challenge was to achieve continuity of service. And of course, everyone kind of looked at that in a legacy fashion. Well, this is going to be short term. We just need to add capacity. We need to make sure that, you know, our critical systems are continuing to be online and people have access to them. But as time's gone on, obviously that's shifted. So the network modernization part of it is now crucial. You just simply cannot cover that expanded attack surface that Amy mentioned, where now we have people accessing the network from wherever they may be, and they may be on a mobile device, right? So even the types of ways that the people are accessing the network has changed. And so we really need to start thinking about not only network modernization in terms of just you know moving up and getting off of legacy technology and moving to newer technology for both our network transport and network management, but you need to start thinking about, well, how are you going to attack the bigger problem of, you know, how do you protect the assets that are on the network so sure. and tools and, you know, base that on the people that need to access it when they need to access it. 
And we hear a lot of agencies saying that simply having lots of VPN connections is not the way they want to go permanently. Is that a fair assessment? Just more capacity. As I said, nice short-term solution. So your VPN works. You know, it's not up and down, dropping and coming back online all day and making it difficult to do work. That obviously has to be done. That was part of it. But that didn't address the larger long-term security outlook. It seems like people almost need a cable type of connection, you know, an always-on sort of connection, but in a secure way. I'm thinking of the EIS contract, which GSA, another piece of GSA has, and agencies are obligated to move there. Can that help with the solution that's more lasting? Yeah, we've been keeping up with our service offerings on EIS, specifically concentrating on cybersecurity. You know, as we've mentioned, you know, in the past and in other venues, you know, we continue to collaborate very heavily with our partners over at CISA. Obviously, we did a lot with them for the Trusted Internet Connection 3.0, where we basically worked with them, understood their guidance, and then worked to make sure that our contract was able to map solutions to that guidance. And we're still doing that today. And that moves forward into other concepts such as zero trust. So, you know, we're still continuing to do a lot in that area. So, Amy, what does then network modernization not so much modernization, what does modernized look like then on average for federal agencies who will have mass work and just simply have to have this type of security? That's a great question, Tom, and thank you for that. Uh, you know, I think every agency is grappling with what does modernization in fact look like for them and how can we ensure as we go forward really what the business needs are and how do we create the tools that agencies are going to need to access as they move that mission forward and as they do so in a world that frankly is ever-changing. The one thing we now know we can absolutely count on is that the world is not going to stay the same today as it was the year ago or even in the go forward. And I think the cybersecurity EO really kind of speaks to that in a broader sense and that we really need to take a look at cybersecurity in particular and the tools that support that from a very holistic perspective. We need to make sure that as we're executing our business mission, we're really thinking about the protection of our networks. We're making sure that we improve the way that we share information up, down, and across the chain of command and really strengthen the ability to respond. Uh, Certainly, EIS gives us the building blocks to work toward a zero-trust architecture, as Jim mentioned, but it's also ensuring that there is a broad approach to thinking about mission to ensure that we have got barriers removed, that we're at the ready to respond, that we're at the ready to detect, and certainly at the ready to remediate in the go forward. And that we think of those actions, not just in the here and now, but in terms of a sustainable, safe architecture and infrastructure that'll support mission today and in the go forward. In many cases, with people working at home, then the corporate or the corporeal network of the agency is dealing and interacting with a home network, which could be, gosh knows, anything. And in turn, with a home router and some ISP, and there's some that are better than others and different speeds and different levels of security, that seems to be one of the major challenges. And Jim, what's the best thinking nowadays in dealing with that particular linkage? You brought up a lot of good points there. There's a lot of methods that users are employing to get into the network. And I think actually that the CISA tick guidance, you know, the reference architecture that they spelled out where um, they identified the concept of trust and that kind of leads into zero trust. It's not really zero trust, but it is the kind of thing where 
you know, you've got different security patterns where your user or your office in the more legacy situation now needs to reach out and access basically three different areas. One is the internet. So as you're talking with your ISP, your ISP is basically at home, whether you're with a cable company or a mobile company, you are getting into the agency resources, whether they reside in the cloud, whether they're still on premise at an agency building or whether they're on the internet. And so you're going to traverse the internet. So that's one thing where now you've got sort of a broader area of attack. So I think the whole notion of zero trust really becomes way more important and therefore such a thrust of the cyber executive order to really start looking at how you protect access to the different tools and different data stores, wherever they may reside. All right. And so then what is the essential technology then that gets you past the VPN? We created, in response to the executive order, we created a zero trust buyer's guide to start looking at how agencies can start to plan for zero trust solutions. There's no silver bullet as our buyer's guide starts out. There's no thing that you can buy off the shelf and outsource to an industry partner and say, here, bolt this onto my network and make it more secure. Zero trust is more a, a kind of a combination of policy, governance, and strategy. So the agencies really need to get involved in terms of defining how it's supposed to work. And then, then we can start talking about the tools that are available on the contracts to start filling those needs, right? So we created this buyer's guide that lays out sort of the tenets of zero trust and we define pillars that don't exactly match the NIST standard or maybe even the CISA guidance, but we feel they're more better related to how you would acquire solutions. So we do that sort of tutorial, and then we create sort of a mapping between capability and where there are sources within GSA contracts to to supply solutions to those requirements. All right. A lot of this centers then where in the device that the user is using somewhere else in those remote locations, whether it's a house or some other location or in the agency data center or in the cloud, all of the above. It's really a matter of all of the above. It's uh, very much, you know, what's at the end user device. So, you know, secure access service edge, that technology and that thinking goes into your edge device protection your network transport, you're looking at how to protect your different methods of transport, obviously, and connections. And beyond that, there's now really no central point. Whereas before, when you had this perimeter network, you could do a castle and moat type of solution. Now your solution is way more distributed. So you need to have those distributed policy enforcement points that cloud access security brokers are one way to achieve that to make sure that while you're accessing the different sources from different points in the network, you get that same policy enforcement no matter where you are. What's your sense of the future of BYOD? Because this is a constant back and forth and you hear some unusual agencies saying they're going to go with BYOD that are generally high security. And you hear a lot of other agencies say, no way, we're going to have government issued devices no matter what. Do you see a trend there and can both modes be supported, do you think? I think both modes can be supported. I think it is highly agency dependent. There are agencies, as you said, that just simply won't allow that. 
There are containerized solutions where you can set up secure containers on a particular commercial device and have basically a, a personal container and a business container, if you will, to where there's sort of a firewall between the two. But personally, I would err on the side of don't do a bring your own device, but uh, I know the different agencies have different thoughts on that, depending on their mission and the critical nature of the data they're trying to protect. Jim Russo is Branch Chief of Solutions Development, and Amy Hazeltine is the Executive Director, both with the GSA's Office of Enterprise Technology Solutions. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. 
and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, 
During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.